You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome. You're listening to America's Web Radio. I'm Dr. Susan Blank, and this is Detailing Addiction. Today in studio, I have with me Michael Daly and David Donaldson from the Atlanta Healing Center. Hi, guys. Hello. Hi. Welcome back. I am so glad to be back, and we've missed our listeners, and we've missed our chats. So um, it's a good day to be back, reminding anybody who needs to be voting today to make sure that you do go out and vote, exercise your patriotic um, duty and honor, um, and glad to have our listeners back. Yes. So today's topic uh, is one that's been interesting, I think, and can go off in a number of different ways. But it all started with, David, you were taking a required course that you have to take every year or every couple of years on ethics in the treatment of folks with addiction. And all of us uh, in the medical field and in the treatment field have requirements to have so many continuing education credits in ethics. So... Yeah, it's actually been interesting. It, ethics has always been a part of the requirements for, for recertifying every two years. You, you always have to take six hours worth of ethics, and it's always the driest portion of the things that you have to take. And so I'm always searching for something that's going to make the subject um, interesting. Uh, one year I did a, a class on aspirational ethics, which is like ethics at the most... Um, utmost. Um, the top of Maslow's hierarchy. <laughs> absolutely. Aspiring to be inspirational. But so this year, um, it, it actually, I ended up doing it in two different areas. First was, be, was part of the requirements this year was that all addiction counselors also have to have a class in e-counseling electronic counseling because that's becoming such a focus and actually at the state level they're now allowing state evaluators to do a lot of the initial evaluations over the telephone or over the computer with electronic means and so they're requiring um, ethics related to e-therapy so I'm now certified as an e-counselor. Yay! (laughs) Um, But in the midst of that, much of the discussion was the ethics involved in being being really clear with the person that you're working with what the limits are to mm-hmm. to what you're able to do with them over the phone. Um, so is this just over the phone or is it over computerized? Computerized. Texting. Okay. Text, telephone, or computer. Okay. Um, providing counseling. Like Skype providing or evaluation. Any of the. All right. Mm-hmm. And, and making really clear that the ethics are still involved in the midst of that relationship, that it's still a therapeutic counseling relationship, even though you don't actually have the person sitting there in your office. Correct. So there are four pillars that we talk about when we speak about medical ethics. And this should apply to anyone um, in the healthcare field. These are the, the cornerstones, if you will, about how you look at the relationship that you have with the patient and the patient has with you. So the first one is autonomy. And I think that it's only been probably in the last 20 years or so that we've seen a whole lot more focus on autonomy, meaning that the patient has a right to understand what's going on. They have a right to make their own decision, including refusing treatment. 
and they have a right um, to informed consent. So many years ago, in a much more... um, a paternalistic kind of relationship that a lot of people had with their doctors, they would do whatever the doctor said. If the doctor said you need to do this, then they would do it without question, without any kind of discussion even. And nowadays, we try and take a lot more time with letting the patient know the risks, the benefits, the alternatives, and the side effects, and giving the patient the opportunity to ask questions. So autonomy is really important. Just Justice is the next one. So if there is going to be um, a limited treatments available, when we think in terms of transplants, so there is a transplant registry, and you make it to the top of the transplant registry based on your medical condition, not what your last name is or how much money you have in the bank or who's who you're friends with. Uh, it's supposed to be equally... Um, uh, available, the organs available to the person most in need, and it should be um, uh, a, in a just way. You can't, don't move to the front of the line because you're a special person. So the idea of justice and fairness in the way limited um, medical treatments or new medical treatments are provided um, is an important pillar of um, of ethical treatment. The next one is beneficence. Uh, say that 15 times. And that has to do with making decisions that are in the best interest of the patient. Making, providing options. If you can't provide a service, refer the patient to someone who can. If what is available um, for them is not in their best interest, you're going to help them get the right kind of treatment. So you are going to be their benefactor, if you will, and you're going to make sure that, that they get what they need, whether or not you can provide it, whether or not it's in your benefit. Um, and this is part of um, the dilemma sometimes uh, in making referrals for patients. So this is the third cornerstone. And I know we're going to come back to it, but that one has been a big focus in addiction in the addiction world recently. Um, As we look at medical-assisted recovery, medicated-assisted recovery versus just the classic 12-step recovery that so many people grew up with, that has been the big debate. Well, and I think that, you know, at this time you should tell them about the split between the MAT and MAR. Because medicated-assisted treatment versus medicated-assisted recovery, um, one of them, they're using, they're using medication to help with the treatment process, and really what they're, they're mostly talking about is a detox, detox. process. Right. Um, which we also talk about is not being treatment. Treatment, right. Versus people who actually need some medication to assist them with their ongoing recovery, either as a maintenance thing or maybe even as a per- perpetual part of their, their lifestyle. Um, which is, is something that would have been taboo to talk about 20 years ago, 10 right. years ago, um, but is something that's absolutely life-saving today. Um, and, and it's so important that this, this particular pillar of medical ethics is that we're not just going based on what we were shown when we were kids and doing what we've always done. It's that we're looking at the research and recognizing that 
what we've always done only worked for about 45% of the population, and we've got to do some things different to try and help the rest of the population. And I think that this also gets into um, another topic that we'll talk a little bit more about, um, and that's patient brokering. This has been a big deal in in Florida. There have been lots of lawsuits. There have been people that have been criminally charged. There have been treatment centers shut down, paying homeless people to get insurance and to come into treatment. Um, phone calls being made and then treatment directed to a hospital or a treatment center that's going to pay the call center back for making the referral. So payment for referrals, payment for people getting treatment. So that is certainly not in the best interest of the patient and um, maybe in the best interest of the treatment provider and if there's ever a question, the tie should go to the runner or the tie should go to the patient. It should be the choices and the um, options made available for the patient should be in the best interest of the well, patient. And I think this is where you bring in that many times when you're, you're calling in a call center, they have inpatient services, they have outpatient services, they have all these various levels of services. And... That's where I think that the person that should be studying the ethics right. and the pillars are. Because that first conversation is where a person kind of directs somebody or a friend of somebody or a loved one. Um, oh, your, your loved one needs this. And many times they'll send them to the highest level of care. Right, whether that's indeed where they need to be or not. Exactly. And the, um, the fourth pillar is um, non-malfeasance. So this is probably the one um, medical ethic, ethical, now I can't find the word, um, the, the one premise of, um, of ethics in medicine that most people are probably familiar with. Not by that name, but first do no harm. So the Hippocratic Oath, I almost wore my, um, my, Your shawl? my shawl today, that's the Hippocratic Oath. So that's the oath that you take as a doctor to say, I'm not going to harm my patient. I'm not going to make a decision or recommend a treatment that will be harmful. First, do no harm. And so those are the four pillars of medical ethics. And a lot of the topics that we're going to talk about today today and some of the offsprings of of the concerns, not just in medicine today, but particularly in addiction medicine and in addiction treatment, um, are generated and um, uh, some of the solutions or the um, the dilemma can be found in looking at one or more of these pillars of medical ethics. Mm-hmm. So thought we would review those to get started. Uh, we've talked about a couple of things, and Michael, you end up um, getting that first phone call. So often a family member, as you said, a friend, or occasionally the patient themselves will right. call. And um, that first phone call, I think, is so very important because it's the first opportunity in many situations that the person has been able to tell their story. So people bond to you, Michael, because you're the first person who's heard the dilemma, who's heard the, um, the concern, and they're reaching out looking for help. 
and it's they're desperate. Uh, they really want you to tell them what to do, and they they may not understand that you need to find some more information and that their answer may not be something that we can provide at the Atlanta Healing Center. Right. And that's that's my first thing. I, I try to get the crucial information that's needed. Right. And then from there, decide, okay, this, this sounds like it could be a fit for Atlanta Healing Center. Um, sometimes, you know, I say, you know, really you need to call um, a, a provider that does a detox, a medically um, assisted detox right away because it sounds to me like you're you know, in need of higher care. And then when you're when you're finished with that detox, you can then come to the Atlanta Healing Center. But just in before even that, I generally go through and talk to them about our entire program. Mm-hmm. What it is, what we offer. What we don't. What we don't offer. And, you know, even so much as talking about the family and the mm-hmm. um, continuing care that the Wednesday nights provide. Right. So it's very, very important that uh, the patient be assessed and directed in the right direction. Mm-hmm. We're going to take a break now. When we come back, we're going to talk about more ethical dilemmas in the treatment of folks who have the disease of addiction. Thanks for listening. Perhaps you are struggling to cope with the disease of addiction. If not, you probably know a family member or friend that needs help in battling the cravings and the personal and professional damage done by the effects of drugs or alcohol. Get a pen and paper and be ready to write down the following. These are the issues that the trained staff at the Atlanta Healing Center address and treat every day. Their doctors and counselors with over 40 years of practice in the field of addiction can treat the suffering individual in a thoughtful, compassionate, and experienced manner and guide him or her along the path to recovery. So call 770-696-9862 and speak to a knowledgeable staff member about how you or your loved one can be helped to enjoy a better and healthier life. More information is also available on the website at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. This is Dr. Susan Blank, host of Detailing Addiction on America's Web Radio. Please join us at 4 p.m. on Tuesday afternoons. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back. This is Detailing Addiction. I'm Dr. Susan Blank. You're listening to America's Web Radio. And today I have David Donaldson and Michael Daly from the Atlanta Healing Center. And we're talking about some ethical dilemmas associated with addiction treatment. Many of you may have read about some of the difficulties that are occurring in the state of Florida in particular, but around the country in terms of treatment centers, addiction treatment centers being um, charged with fraud, abuse of patients, uh, all kinds of ethical problems that uh, have resulted in many of them being closed and difficulties within in the state for those programs that actually are ethical and are good and do provide reasonable treatment. But it has um, really become much more of a concern for a lot of patients and their families to make sure that where they're going to find treatment, they're going to get good um, direction and good ethical care. Well, and that's where 
when I when I get that initial call, and if it is a loved one, I I tell them, you know, this is a really important decision that you're making, and you need to think this over before you before you jump right into it. I know that um, many people are looking at it as, oh my gosh, we've got a crisis and we have to do it right now. Right. But the truth is, twenty four hours or or a couple days is sometimes better to figure it out than to just make a snap decision. So that first medical um, ethic mm-hmm. that you mentioned was was autonomy. Correct. And part of how we look at that is, is um, under the guidelines of informed consent. Right. And what we mean by that is that we are letting the person know their full options and we're, and we're, we're telling them the options that we have that we can supply and the things that we do and why we know what we do works but we're also saying there are other programs that do such and such or or, you know that it might be that because of your situation that you need these other things and these are some programs that that would provide that for you and that's part of that initial phone call that Michael ends up taking so often he's having to give them all kinds of information about other programs because they're for whatever reason and not going to be a fit with us. Right. Um, and, and that's giving them the full benefit. When they then come to see you or see me, we're giving, we're doing that same informed consent related to all kinds of different aspects of what we're doing with them, whether it's why we're recommending this amount of, of group therapy, why we're doing this amount of the neurofeedback, what we're t- explaining that we hope is going to come from the neurofeedback as an alternative to... For example, somebody that comes with addiction and they also have ADD, people with ADD are often prescribed medications that will kill people with addiction. And so we have to help them understand that although this is a really good medication for a bunch of people, for you it could be a really bad thing. And this is a service that can fix the problem. Um, Well, and and at that point you need to let them know what the expectations of your of your program are and Correct. whether or not you're you're going to um uh, i don't want to use the word allow but if 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 add meds are very much um over right over prescribed overused there's a lot of folks out there that that shouldn't be on them and if you're one of those people you certainly will be taken off that medication if you come to see us. Right. And that's an important you know, thing for people to understand. What are our limitations? A lot of times folks will say, well, I want to do this outpatient. But then you find out, well, um, just a person that I was talking um, to earlier um, in the last week, um, a woman uh, recently divorced has young children. So the dilemma about Number one, can you go away? Um, can you go to a residential treatment center? Because you need to be detoxed and you need to be able to have your full focus on your recovery program. Are you going to be able to do that and manage to get back and forth to treatment, not use or drink, take care of your children, run through Atlanta traffic? How how are you going to be able to make sure that the children are cared for when you don't even know if you can stop using? So there's often, yeah, I want to be home because I've got these little kids, um, 
but maybe your best bet is to be at a higher level of care and know that grandparents are coming to take care of the kids or that you're able to get um, friends or family to help you with that. So there's lots of things that go into deciding what's your best level of care. Can you drive? Who's going to watch you if you're going to have a seizure? Who's going to call 911 if you're doing an ambulatory detox Mm -hmm. at home? Can your 7-year-old call 911? Do you want to count on that being your your lifeline? And do you want to put that child in that kind of scary situation? So sometimes it's about, I have to use my insurance. mm -hmm. Sometimes it's about what's going to make the most sense. Sometimes it's about safety. Sometimes it's about um, what you actually need medically that cannot be provided at whatever level of care you're looking at. Mm -hmm. So even residential treatment for someone who's on dialysis Mm -hmm. Um, had this discussion today. Someone on dialysis can't go to a residential treatment that's an hour and a half from the nearest dialysis provider because they have to have dialysis three times a week. So even though that's a really good program, it's perfect for them, they love it there, that's not an option for them because realistically they can't get the medical care they need. So there's lots of things that have to go into the informed consent. The risks, the benefits, the alternatives, which are really important, and Michael spends a lot of time on alternatives. And then if there are going to be um, certain treatment um, protocols provided, what are the side effects? And what's the risk if you do nothing? Uh, And what's the opportunity if you do nothing? So sometimes uh, these kinds of discussions, while they may seem inane, are actually so very important to think through all of the ways in which treatment is going to impact your life. Absolutely. And crucial, um, because these these different pillars overlap each other, the, the, the importance of giving them all of the information and all the details and the importance of do no harm real often means that you have to talk to them about finances because you can especially these shopper these patient shopper programs part of what they were doing was creating a lot of financial harm for a lot of individuals as well as for a lot of institutions um and so part of when, when Michael is having to talk to these to new people that are calling or we're talking to them about specific program options that we would recommend, we're having to say, you know, this is going to, this is, there are expenses to this and these are some alternatives that you can try um, because we have to be mindful that we're not creating a financial burden that's going to put them into Bankrupt such them. a level right. of stress that they go back to medicating their stress. Right. right. So there's lots and lots of things that go into making a decision to get into treatment, and um, there are many pitfalls along the way. It's very important that if people are trying to hurry you along and not answer your questions or give you the information that you think you need, that's probably not the place for you or your loved one. We're going to take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk about more dilemmas in addiction treatment. Thanks for listening. This is David Donaldson with the Atlanta Healing Center, conveniently located in Lawrenceville, Georgia. At AHC, your success is our goal. It's about becoming a whole person and addressing all...
This is Dr. Susan Blank, host of Detailing Addiction on America's Web Radio. Please join us at 4 p.m. Welcome back. This is Detailing Addiction. This is America's Web Radio, and I'm Dr. Susan Blank. Today, Michael Daly and David Donaldson are with me from the Atlanta Healing Center, and we're talking about some of the ethical dilemmas associated with addiction treatment. Uh, many uh, pitfalls throughout um, all, all kinds of treatment, but I think the most um, difficult Time is that an initial treatment and trying to find out where's the best place, what's the best fit, what's the best philosophy, how do I feel here, um, and do I trust that I'm going to be taken care of? I, I have to say that uh, I worked for a time at a treatment center that treated children um, as young as 13. And often, the families, because it's so rare to find that kind of adolescent treatment, families may be coming from anywhere in the United States or even other countries. And I knew we had a good staff. I knew our people were competent. I knew they were going to be careful and gentle and um, and kind and keep these kids safe. But I, I remember one day watching a family just tearfully driving away, going back to Canada after they had dropped off their 13-year-old, thinking how horrible that must be for them mm-hmm. to be leaving their child and just fingers crossed, trusting they're in another country. It's not just down the street and how scary that is. And I think sometimes we in the business feel good about what we do and about what we provide and we understand that we're trained and that we keep up our competencies and take our continuing education and keep our licensing current. 
But many people don't know that and how scary it is to leave your loved one in the care of somebody you don't know. Well, and that's that's why it's so important in that early stage to really let that person feel what kind of facility you really are and help them understand that you everyone is caring everyone is loving everyone has been through it we've all been touched by it in some way shape or form so we know exactly what they're going through and we're trying to help them make decisions based on experience right and in the midst of that um, really in, in the informed consent but also in the whole process of admitting really explain to them the the roles and the the um in particular around confidentiality because yes. people want to know that they can call and they can check on their family member um, and they want to know that what you're doing with their family member is going to be appropriate and helpful and not harming anything but there are limits to what a therapist can say to a family member over the phone most places will have a, a identifying number that they have to give that that notifies that this person is the is um who they say they are. Who they say they are. But then also there has to be a signed release that says, yes, it's okay to talk to this person, and it's about these things I can talk to this person about. And, and not these things. And not <laughs> these things. Um, so patients, in particular, are really trusting that you are going to you are going to value their relationships and respect their relationships and not say something that's going to put their relationships in jeopardy and at the same time family members are trusting that you're going to be, be helping the their family members <laughs> it's a big dilemma um a lot of times the payer expects to be able to call and get all the information and get all the drug screens and the patient does not have that level of trust with the family member that they're going to release all of that and the therapist and the intake people and the doctors are all kind of in the middle. Well, we have to sure. we have to make sure that we explain all that to them right from the start. That you know that every patient has the right to um, privacy with their information. Correct. And they have to give explicit consent with a witness that says yes, I am this person, and yes, I do give you the right to have this information um and it's a really it's a hard dance because like you said the usually the loved one or the finance the person with the finances expect you know to be told everything everything anything they want to know absolutely the patient doesn't want to give them anything correct mm -hmm. so you have to have a little dance where you say okay well to the patient let's build some trust let's offer this this and this so that they know that you're you're going in the right direction they don't have to know the particulars and even even some states minors have the ability to while the parents give consent for their patient to be admitted the minor has to give their consent and they can refuse information being released to an insurance company or to the family members. It's a very tricky dance, as you said, Michael, uh, with the idea that the, the individual does have the right 
to confidentiality. And it's not just by state. There are also federal regulations. 42 CFR Part 2 is very specific around people who have the diagnosis of the disease of addiction. Mm -hmm. And nothing can be released to anyone without that person's written permission and specific details about what can and can't be released. So I give the example of if a family member brings you in for your assessment and then they leave to go get a coffee and um, realize that they have the patient's cell phone, they come back into Atlanta Healing Center saying, I have Joe Blow's cell phone, and if we don't have a release signed yet, even though I've seen Mama, and Mama's seen me, and we've been introduced, if the patient hasn't signed the release, we can't acknowledge that we even know who he is, even though he's sitting right there. Right. Um, and the which, fam- which family I think is just so crazy. It is. It's so crazy, because when you have a minor, um, somebody under the age of 18, th- their guardian has to sign all the paperwork. Right. But the minute all that paperwork is signed and handed to us, that patient then has to sign a release <laughs> so that we can talk so to that, that we can talk to that guardian who's just signed them in. But in the part two of the the C forty two CFR forty two CFR is specific about substance abuse diagnosis. Mm-hmm. Which has to be explained to people because there'll be a lot of times, um, particularly at a medical hospital where a person's been admitted for some medical situation and suddenly they're having withdrawal symptoms because they didn't tell their family members that they had been abusing this. And so suddenly they now have a substance abuse diagnosis, which means they are a part two patient. And all of the confidentiality laws that apply specifically to a substance abuse patient are now in force, even though they were there because they were having um, gallbladder surgery or something. But what's worse is when they are admitted for the gallbladder surgery or whatever it is, they don't disclose and the, the medical team has no idea that they're even in withdrawal. Yes. So it gets very complicated. We have HIPAA. Most all of us are familiar with HIPAA. But 42 CFR is HIPAA on steroids. It's much more intense. So the the confidentiality that we have to keep is, is serious. And it is a level of trust between the provider and the patient that they have the ability to seek help, to be honest about what's going on with them, about how their addiction has affected them, about decisions and sometimes bad decisions they've made under the influence, they have to be able to be free to talk about those things and to get some help and support on how to overcome them, how to deal with the shame and guilt, and how to move on in their recovery. So that level of confidentiality is critical to that part of their recovery even when it is frustrating to family members and um, and relatives. And it absolutely provides the safety that's necessary for the patients to do the work and for the family members to trust the work's being done, but it is so uncomfortable um, for the person who's in that position of having to 
keep the confidentiality and keep the balance. As for for example, we'll have a patient who has not signed a release for family members to be able to get drug screen results, and that patient will be there, and they will be doing all of this work, and they will have a slip, but they're not ready for you to let their family know, and they're not ready to let their family know, and you're sitting there with their family and family group, and giving them education, getting the family to talk, but not disclosing information that's not you're not allowed to disclose. <laughs> there might be this moral thing that says you need to share it, but ethically you're not allowed. Oh, absolutely. And that's where there's also, in in the realm of the confidentiality, is the duty to report and the duty to protect. So there are limits on this level of confidentiality, and that's one of the things that uh, we try and, and get across to families. If your loved one is dangerous to themselves or somebody else, then regardless of what level of confidentiality we are bound by, we will tell you. If they're having suicidal thoughts, we will tell you. If they're having thoughts of hurting someone else, we will have to tell you that. If there is suspected, we don't have to prove it, we don't have to see pictures, we don't have to know it ourselves, but if the person reports child abuse or child endangerment, we have a duty to report that. If there's potential elder abuse or elder neglect, we have a duty to report that even though we have these confidentiality. The other thing are threats to the president. So if there are threats to the president, we have a duty to report those. So there are some parameters and there are some medical emergencies. If a patient overdoses and is found unconscious, we call 911. We tell them what what their diagnosis is. We tell the EMS um, what their medications they're on. We give them a copy of their identifying information because that is one of the times in which we can breach their confidentiality to save their life. So there are some limitations, and in that process that you described, David, of the dance that we do when the patient isn't quite ready to acknowledge um, that they've had a slip and that they need um, uh, to report that to their family, they're not ready to do that yet. We, we have to also have the relationship with the family to say, if it's serious, if it's dangerous, if it's life-threatening, we will let you know. And I think that that dance of we're going to keep your confidence, but if you're doing dangerous things, if you are threatening yourself or someone else, if we think you're at risk, <coughs> we may have to breach your confidentiality. And, I, and, and it's, a, it's a dance, and it's a dilemma sometimes about do I say this, do I not? But Another- we do the best we can. Another thing that we deal with, which is right along this, this realm, is that many times we'll get a, an insurance company, third party, or a party that has been somehow, say, notified of drug, drug, uh, urine drug screens, urine drug tests. And then all of a sudden they want all the medical records. And we say to the patient, wait a minute, don't sign that. Because when you sign that, you are releasing everything that is in your chart and so many times we have to educate them the patient on let's just give them this this and this because that's all they need right and they can't protect 
they can't protect the, your confidentiality and they don't have a duty to. No. That is not their responsibility. It's our responsibility to inform you about the potential consequences if you release your entire medical record because you, you want your child to be able to get special consideration in school. Mm-hmm. And we've done some cognitive testing and we've established that they have some learning disabilities. They don't need all of the background information about their substance abuse, about their childhood uh, abuse and neglect, about uh, a number of other things that cannot be protected in their school record. So we may release some parts of an evaluation. We may want them to send to their primary care a copy of their um, lab studies that show they need follow-up for their anemia. We, we try and guide them very carefully, and we always call a patient if there has been a request from their record mm-hmm. to make sure, even if they're no longer a patient, we haven't seen them for three years, we still will reach out to that person. We won't release it without them signing on our form, which I know is a pain and everybody gets all flustered about it, but we need to verify that... Who is requesting it? Why are they requesting it? And is the person okay with it? And have we talked about what are the risks of releasing this record? And sometimes they'll not release the record. Right. We actually had a phone call, or we had a request for information from a physician at a hospital for a particular patient. Um, But there was nothing in our record indicating who this hospital was or who this physician was. And... It happened that this particular patient was a patient at that hospital at that time. So we pretty much had to give the standard answer. We have no, I, um, we can't, I can't give the standard answer. We can't confirm or can't deny. If you know this person and you want to have them call us and we can get a release for them to fill out and send back to us, then we can go forward. But short of that, have a great day. Thank you. Thank you for calling. Thanks for asking. So even though they were in a confidential, protected CFR 42 Part 2 kind of program, they were still facing the reality that they have to follow these procedures at every place they've been. So that we can protect their information and that we can keep their records confident, mm-hmm. confidential. And that's, again, part of the healing, part of the frustration, um, but it is part of the reality of what we deal with. Um, with and it's, it's really, China. really important to some people when they make that initial call. That's one of the things I hear all the right. time is, now, how am I going to be sure that, that all of this is kept private and confidential and you know you have to explain to them well and part of our emphasis is that we are treating a medical disease and we are treating it from a medical model and we are treating it under a medical physician who has um, a psychiatrist uh, protections and so just because a record is requested doesn't mean that we're going to just turn it over. These are protected um, under very, very specific guidelines. There are a lot of programs who are providing addiction care under a social model, and they'll they'll not have the same level of protection. Mm-hmm. 
So everybody sees a psychiatrist at Atlanta Healing Center so that under my um, privilege um, as a psychiatrist, I can protect the records. Absolutely. And that's um, very important because sometimes there are legal ramifications for many of our patients. We're going to take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk about that very difficult subject called boundaries. So please stay tuned. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key and the trained staff at EHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. This is Ron Camacho, host of the Business Hour, on Fridays from 10 to 11 a.m. Join me as I talk with passionate professionals on a program that profiles the best businesses, business practices, and fascinating business professionals to get an insider view of how America works. Perhaps you are struggling to cope with the disease of addiction. If not, you probably know a family member or friend that needs help in battling the cravings and the personal and professional damage done by the effects of drugs or alcohol. Get a pen and paper and be ready to write down the following. These are the issues that the trained staff at the Atlanta Healing Center address and treat every day. Their doctors and counselors with over 40 years of practice in the field of addiction can treat the suffering individual in a thoughtful, compassionate, and experienced manner and guide him or her along the path to recovery. So call 770-696-9862 and speak to a knowledgeable staff member about how you or your loved one can be helped to enjoy a better and healthier life. More information is also available on the website at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back. This is Detailing Addiction. I'm Dr. Susan Blank, and this is America's Web Radio. Today, Michael Daly and David Donaldson have been helping me discuss the concepts of dilemmas, ethical dilemmas, in addiction treatment. We saved the most complex for last, and that's the idea of boundaries. Now, back when I was in my psychiatric residency. I was trained in a strict psychoanalytic institute. Um, The uh, rule there was that you called the person by Mrs. Jones, Mr. Brown, you used Mr., Mr., Mrs., Ms., um, and their last name. You would actually touch the patient only twice. Once you would shake their hand when you first met them, and you would shake their hand when you completed treatment with them. 
Otherwise, there was no other physical contact of any kind. There was no using first names. They called you Dr. Blank, and that those were the, the very strict boundaries. So you didn't even shake hands at the end of each session? Oh, no. no. Just at the end yes. of treatment? At the end of treatment, which may be several years. Or maybe the first, or maybe never, um, but uh, but that it was a very very strict protocol around the interaction and the relationship within uh, therapy. So I grew up in the milieu therapy mode of treatment where everything was a family, where you started the day with a hug and you ended the day with the side hugs. Side hugs, so that right. they weren't misconstrued, but there was still a hug, seven hugs a day for good mental health. Um, everybody was first named except for the doctor. The doctor was still racing in and out and called by doctor, but everything else was much more of hands-on touch, really get connected with people. Good touch, good appropriate touch. touch. Healthy. Holding hands in a circle at the end of a group to say the serenity prayer or um, whatever closing ritual that you would have. Right, right. So when I went to work at Talbot Recovery Campus um, to learn about addiction medicine, I was a staff psychiatrist, and the first patient I had the first day walked in and gave me a big old hug. And I just about had a stroke. I I was thinking, my supervisors up in heaven are going to be looking down on me, and this is so crazy inappropriate. And I obviously startled, and it was they were offended and feelings hurt. And I didn't understand that in addiction world, um, a hug or a, a holding hands at the end of group is appropriate uh, with the caveat that many of these folks may have had trauma and so you have to be very careful and understand what the touch meant. So um, for the most part (laughs) no sexual interaction at all and if there is any kind of indication on the part of the patient or the therapist um, that this is more than a friendly way to end a group or a form of a greeting, then that has to be part of the discussion because that is inappropriate, always, totally, never should happen. Ever. Ever, 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 ever. Um, That being said, there's all sorts of strange other boundaries that happen in in the course of addiction treatment. One of the things that happens is that because we're more of a community-based treatment program, you may be out at a restaurant or an event. Mm Mm-hmm with a family member or a friend, Mm -hmm. and there across the way you see a patient. So um, this can often generate some weird interactions. Absolutely. And angst. Um, The rule is that as a therapist, as the psychiatrist, I'm not going to acknowledge you at all. I'm not going to smile at you. I'm not going to wave at you. I'm not going to run across the lobby and and give you a big, big AA hug. I'm going to not acknowledge you at all. Right. If you decide that you want to break your own confidentiality and come up and say something to me, 
I'm still not going to introduce you to the person that I'm with, and the people in my life are pretty clear about that if I don't introduce... No questions asked. No questions asked, because I don't want to have to explain how I know you or how you know me, because that's a breach of your confidentiality. That often creates some difficulty because the patient's feelings get hurt or their families get hurt. Um, but it, it's real important that you have those kinds of discussions sometimes because... It, it happens. It happens. It happens all the time. It happens in the grocery store. It happens at the Home Depot. It happens at church. It happens at meetings. Absolutely. Now, that's one thing, that many people that go to meetings mm-hmm. or their families that go to Al-Anon or, you know, whatever whatever the meeting is, um, they learn that there is anonymity. And if that happens outside of the, the meeting or the group or the whatever situation, they're kind of used to it. But the folks that haven't been around that at right. all, where they're really, really fresh and new – it's offensive to them, I think, sometimes. But and the, uh, the lack of boundaries that they have already that coming in, that they're apt to see you in a, in a situation. Actually, it just happened to me this weekend at an event. Um, I had gone to an event with uh, several family members, and across the way was a former patient. And this person came right on over. How are you doing? What's going on? He was my therapist. And is announcing all of that. Um, and... Gave, singing my praises as to what a great therapist which I is am. good and I was you know grateful about right. that part but, um, then we we just kind of politely went on with things and and it was all fine um, but it is something that you deal with on a pretty regular basis when you're in in a community well and and oftentimes people think oh the larger the community that you're in the less chance. But that's not true. Somehow it's it, not true. Somehow it always, always. happens. Mm-hmm. And so I think it's it, – but it is very interesting because it does create some anxiety on the part of the patient, too, wondering if they're supposed to come up and say something and not wanting to introduce me there, as their doctor. There so are it's definite guidelines for when – in particular in the recovery world, when you would disclose your own recovery process to right. a patient – um, you certainly don't want to be at the same place in your recovery process as they are. You want to be further down the road. In the addiction world, we recommend that you're at least two years further down the road. Um, I think it's about the same time for for medical. Yes. Um, but in the midst of that, because... I, the recovery process involves a lot of, you know, you're peeling back the onion and you're going through a lot of different things and you're learning different boundaries along the way. You could actually be dealing with some issues in your own recovery life that your patient is also dealing with in terms of a relationship mm-hmm. issue or dealing with an elderly parent or something. And that isn't the time that you sit there and relate with them like you're uh, their peer because they are still looking for you for guidance and for direction and for hope that they're going to survive all of this. Um, <clears throat> so recognizing that when you choose to self-disclose anything about your recovery process, that it's in the mindset of it's going Being to be beneficial helpful. and helpful yes. for the patient's journey and not for your own need to self-disclose. Right. Um, 
again, having been trained um, at Shepherd Pratt, um, a psychoanalytic um, hospital, it's not so much now, but it was in those days, never would you have a picture of a family member or any kind of anything about your own self. So you can have books on your shelf, you can have little knickknacks, but not uh, not any that would reveal anything about the sports you enjoyed or the recreational things. You are a blank slate for this person, and they're not supposed to have insight you, into who you, you are. You could have a clock, but you it doesn't have, have to be shaped like a penguin. Right. Um, or a flamingo. Or a or, flamingo. Right. So I have opted rather than photos of my family, friends, loved ones, and uh, general activities to have my room in Flamingo. So if anyone ever visits the Atlanta Healing Center, you will see a lot of flamingos. They are generally limited just to my office. <laughs> we, um, some of us have standards. Some, some, yes, everyone else does have some opposition. We should actually have a Flamingo Day where they're allowed out of the office. And, and <laughs> can mingle with can others. Can mingle with the rest of the patients. Uh, but it is it is important that we, it, in terms of do we what do we ex- disclose about our own journeys with recovery, um, that we are making that decision as a way to support the patient and not for our own needs, not for our own therapy, not because something's on our mind and we're so preoccupied with that that we can't pay attention to what our patient is struggling with or dealing with. Well, and, and it's very interesting because many times the, the patient goes into such depth and detail that you're learning really, really personal things about Absolutely. that person. But at the same time, there's a wall. Right. You know, it's a glass wall, but there's a wall. There's a wall. It's that a boundary. safety and protection for everybody involved. Everybody. Thank you all for listening. We look forward to seeing you all next week on Detailing Addiction. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.